Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. If you're sensing something ancient, cosmic, inescapable, and frightening this Halloween season, you may be catching a Lovecraftian breeze, as in H.P. Lovecraft, the maestro of weird fiction. He was an acolyte of Edgar Allan Poe and a forebearer of Shirley Jackson and Stephen King. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was a lonely, near-reclusive child of Providence, Rhode Island, who felt intimations of mind-melting infinity in New England of the 1920s and 30s. The coast north of Boston inspired him with Gothic ideas, which he dished out in stories long and short for pulp magazines, thrilling readers who visited his mythical sites like Arkham, Miskatonic University, and Innsmouth, a fictional universe terrorized by creatures like Cthulhu, the ocean monster so complexly described that he cannot be pictured. Lovecraft specialized in such things, colors of no color, minerals not found on Earth, languages that cannot be pronounced, and of course an unreadable and uncaring universe formed in fright, as Melville put it speculatively. In Lovecraftian horror, that bleakness was doctrine. It was a while before I could drift back to sleep, and I seemed directly to re-enter my earlier dream, except that this time the vision was clearly, horribly before me. On every side of the chamber, the walls were alive with nauseous sound. The verminous slithering of ravenous, gigantic rats. I could see a hideous shaking all over the tapestry. We begin our Halloween appreciation of H.P. Lovecraft with Joyce Carol Oates. Her favorite is that story, The Rats in the Walls. She's read them all and written her own stories in homage to his influence. I add our own opening note that Lovecraft is not for everybody. His stories can read like transcriptions of a neurotic dreamscape for a nervous psychoanalyst. His racial insults are habitual and worrisome. But then, as Miss Oates would say, his license was only to tell stories. Well, Gothic fiction is realistic fiction in a psychological sense. When we look at Gothic fiction over the centuries, it's dealt with creatures and situations that don't exist. They have no place in reality. There are no vampires. There are no werewolves. There are no ghosts. There are no haunted houses and haunted castles. These things do not exist. It's a purely invented, imagined dimension of being. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean Well, obviously, it's metaphorical. When you imagine a creature like a vampire that sucks blood from living people, you are probably trying to express a sense of there being real people in the real world. They could be people who have more property than you do, people who are noblemen in the past, people who have political power, people who have money. They are people... There are creatures different from yourself, but only because they mm-hmm. have more power than you. So the vampire, while 
it's a creature of myth and legend is also has a psychological factor. That component makes Gothic literature for some people intensely exciting because they're reading about subjects that have been uh, <clears throat> they've been sort of internalized and given a very high potency. So Lovecraft is purely metaphorical. He never writes, as far as I know, I don't think he's ever written one realistic story, one story or one work of fiction that we would say was in a naturalistic or realistic vein. It's purely imagined landscape of the mind. He's creating situations that express his basic feeling that the human beings are out of place in the universe. Yes. That our expectations of civilizations and civil behavior and family life and allegiance to a country or a nation or patriotism, that all those are delusions that we're in a universe that has nothing human in it at all. And that is the bedrock of Lovecraft's vision. He called it a vision of the weird. Yes, yes. We're happy to be ignorant of our real situation, which is basically lost in a chaotic, violent, destructive, (laughs) uncaring universe. Yeah, something like that. And I think there's a difference between what's scary and what's terrifying. Yes. That when people look at Halloween entertainment, most of it is is scary. It's for children. It, It makes people shiver or shudder. It makes them pleasantly afraid. But when you, when you push farther into Gothic literature, it's like overtone, overturning uh, a slab of granite in the earth, going into a mausoleum. You're really facing something that's more like terror. The narrator in his stories believes in these destructive creatures that can pop up anywhere, and most vividly for me, in that town Innsmouth, this, there's yeah. a bleakness, there's a threat, there's a loneliness. Well, he's a storyteller, and he wants to create suspense, and he's playing upon people's fears. I think that he's more a, a practitioner of terror than of scary subjects. Yeah. I don't think of him necessarily as being scary. The Rats in the Walls is a truly terrifying story. A man who's descended from nobility, who's living in, he's an American, but his ancestors go back to, to England in the 18th century or 17th century, he goes back to rural England and he comes into possession of his own old family estate. And finally, he explores the foundations of the estate and discovers cannibalism and also the bestiality Mm. and a kind of layered civilization. When you pry beneath the surface of civilization, you come upon something that's really inhuman. But the story is very well told. I'm reducing it to its meaning, but stories are never, really, like poetry, not supposed to reduce the meaning. It, the experience of reading it or hearing it, that's, that's the purpose of storytelling, is to have an experience. And I teach that story to my students, and we, we analyze it, we analyze the prose, we look at the sentences. We look at the development. It's very skillfully written. As I said, it's an allegory, really, of, of humanity. It's as if we're looking into our own souls, our own psyche. 
discovering that we're not so civilized as we seem and that much of our civilization is hypocritical. Any lessons of craft you want to give us while we're at it? Lessons from Lovecraft? Well, I think like Edgar Allan Poe, Lovecraft was a very distinct stylist. Some people think that his writing is excessive, and that may be, but it's also hallucinatory, and it's kind of overwhelming. It's it's a language that's very, very antithetical to Hemingway, let's say, quite mm-hmm. the opposite of Hemingway. Right. It's filled with emotions. It's filled with drama and melodrama. It's just a very, very different kind of writing from minimalism. I like all these kinds of writing. I, like, I admire Hemingway immensely. But there's a richness and a kind of craziness, really, and excessiveness in in Lovecraft, you also find in Cormac McCarthy. Yes. That's kind of lush and over-the-top and exaggerated. Now we're getting there. He's a maximalist. He's a maximalist of certain emotions. Yeah. He has no, he has no interest, for instance, in the family. He has no interest in, in marriage. The marriage plot was always the standard device of 19th century fiction. He has no interest in any of that. He has no interest in a human relations. People don't have brothers or sisters or fathers. You know, he's basically writing a kind of, almost like Samuel Beckett, except it's much more lush with language. Yes, he says, my life lies not among people, but scenes. He said, it is New England I must have. Providence is part of me. Then he says, I am Providence. I have a book called Night Gaunts, the novella in there is about Lovecraft. It goes through his whole life, actually. His loneliness, his great devotion to the library. There, there was a library in Providence that yes. he spent a lot of time in, a beautiful public library, a beautiful library. I think it was near his house. The fact that his father did have syphilis, but it was never named or acknowledged. The fact that his mother was probably infected also and maybe he was infected because of the mother giving birth to him. Mm. All these are really tragedies, and I put this all together in a, in a novella. Night Gaunts was the name of the name that he gave to his nightmares. He would lie mm. in his bed and seem to see these figures, like phantoms, like in the ceiling or moving around in the darkness. Joyce, it's going to be a great library run on Night Gaunts. I even have his poem in the front of the book, Night Gaunts. Out of what crypt they crawl, I cannot tell, but every night I see the rubbery things, black, horned, and slender, with membranous wings. They come in legions on the north wind swell with obscene clutch that titillates and stings, snatching me off on monstrous voyagings, to gray worlds hidden deep in nightmares well. Over the jagged peaks of Thonk they sweep, heedless of all the cries I try to make, and down in nether pits to that foul lake where the puffed sugars splash in doubtful sleep. But ho, oh, if only they would make some sound, or wear a face where faces should be found. Mm. That's a really good poem. It's, it's a jolly good poem. And it tells us where at least some literary lives are born. 
Yes, out of out of the fear and trembling and loneliness and sorrow of this boy who didn't have very many friends and was susceptible to what he called night gaunts. I think even adults today sometimes wake up at 4.30 in the morning and can't get back to sleep, and you could have experiences like this. But it's so touching because at the end, he says, if only they had a human face. If only they would make some sound or wear a face. In other words, he was yearning for human connection, maybe human companionship, for, for intimacy. So it's a sad poem, but it is a good poem, I think. Joyce Carol Oates teaches at Princeton and writes day and night. Coming up, H.P. Lovecraft and his racism upended anew for The Screen. This is Open Source. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, wrote the spooky fiction man H.P. Lovecraft. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear, he thought, is fear of the unknown. Here are the first lines of his bedrock story, The Call of Cthulhu, focusing the reader fast on that fear. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee. Lovecraft the Man, buried in Providence 82 years ago, pops up as a central character and central mystery in Paul Lafarge's recent novel, The Night Ocean. I asked Paul Lafarge to give us first his physical description of the man he's been tracking. Medium tall, very pronounced jaw, skinny guy. He was married briefly in his 30s to a uh, Jewish wife who fed him a lot of spaghetti, and he gained weight and he was very unhappy about it. Oh, wow. He's wearing an old brown suit. Maybe it's the suit that he inherited from his maternal grandfather and has worn ever since. Maybe it's a, a cheap suit that he bought in New York 10 years ago. He has a thin piping voice, but he does like to talk. He's a great conversationalist and his friends find him very entertaining. He rides the bus. He's a, a man of no means. And he dines on canned beans cheese, and ice cream, which he washes down with sweetened coffee. And you will perhaps not be surprised to hear that he died of a cancer of the intestine, given his diet. He has a sort of pallid, irregular skin, which reminds me of the fish people he describes in Innsmouth. He was an odd-looking dude, right? Well, he wasn't that odd-looking, you know, at least in the, the photographs that we have of him. On the other hand, when he was a boy, his mother told him and told her neighbors that he was too ugly to go out by daytime. Yeah. So he uh, he didn't. He went out mostly at night, which may have uh, 
contributed to the pallor of his complexion. We're talking about a lot of the elements that turn up in these stories, Paul, and I'd like you to sort of bring them together. Make a list, if you will, of the elements of a Lovecraft story. I think the foundational element of a Lovecraft story is a pervasive fear that that the universe is a, a terrible place. It's terrible because it's enormous and full of very powerful beings which really just don't care about us at all. If they cared about us, it would actually be less terrible. But really, here we are, we're these tiny, helpless beings faced with a cosmos that only gets worse the more we know about it. And there's really nothing we can do. We want to know the truth, but we really can't handle the truth. We, we dig around, we become scholars and scientists and engineers and philosophers, and we kind of dig around in search of uh, the unknown. And then we find it, and it kills us or drives us mad. Mm. Um, and there isn't a remedy for it. There's no way for us to win in that world. We're, we are what we are, and the universe is what it is. And the best thing we could hope for would be never to find out what's actually going on. Although, if we never found out, we would be missing out on uh, all the fun of reading Lovecraft. <laughs> we are, in fact, very insignificant little insects in a certain way, and yet we have this peculiar pretension, as he had, of being respectable, having good names, degrees, universities, studies, which is all a sort of system of, of delusion. What we don't want to know is... Um, what we don't want to know is that all of our degrees are only digging us deeper into a knowledge of the terrors of the cosmos. Right. Meantime, we live in these sort of old Edwardian apartments in old American cities like Providence or Boston, or I'm thinking all over Essex County in Innsmouth, there is a kind of aristocracy. He loves paying a certain kind of homage to good names and good people, but they're, they're sort of threadbare even now. They're long past their prime. Yeah, sometimes centuries past their prime because they've found magical means to prolong their lives indefinitely, whether it's, um, you know, draining the souls of other folks or uh, intermarrying with the fish frogs that live on a reef in the bay. Exactly. Speak of Call of Cthulhu, maybe his greatest unforgettable story. It begins in sort of respectable providence, but then ends up in... God knows where in the South Pacific, in a cyclopean yeah. underworld empire of a monster that that shakes the whole universe when he will. Yeah. Oddly, it ends more or less the spot where they decided that Malaysian Airlines flight was lost. Ooh. It's that big old patch of the ocean where there's no reason to go there, so no one goes. Wow, and, uh, Paul, I'm getting uh, yeah. goosebumps and quivers. The Facebook uh, Lovecraft community was all abuzz. Wow. Describe Cthulhu and how he got there, what star he arrived from, what minerals his empire is made of that can't be recognized on any, any standard scientific chart. 
Well, you know, the problem is those minerals can't be recognized on any scientific chart because they come from another star and they're uh, completely unknown to our physicists and chemists and geologists. But Cthulhu himself, as Lovecraft describes him, is quite large, possibly the size of a mountain. His head is at least as tall as a, a fairly large steamboat. Mm. He has a an octopoid head with kind of tentacles where the mouth ought to be. He has pointed bat-like wings and uh, kind of flabby hands which end in claws which are uh, about the right size to snatch up human sailors and kind of stuff them into his uh, tentacled mouth for a snack. Mm. Speak, please, about a story called The Shadow Over Innsmouth. And it might be my favorite, Lovecraft, just because it's a very familiar terrain north of Boston, Essex County, Cranes Beach. I think that might actually be the, the site of Innsmouth, the town. Yeah. But it's a godforsaken old gambrel-roofed Victorian town, almost completely depleted and abandoned. But the dark secret is that another underground force, this time in the shape of fish or fish people, is playing the Cthulhu rule. And the descriptions are absolutely wonderful. People have become sort of fishified in this place. And there's one night when the, the narrator sees them, the fish surging and hopping down the Rowley Road in plain sight in front of me as I crouched among the wild brambles of that desolate railway cut. But then he goes on to get a closer look and sees them flopping, hopping, croaking, bleating, surging inhumanly through the spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant saraband of fantastic nightmare. Their predominant color was a grayish-green Though they had white bellies, they were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish, with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their necks were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed, and on and on. He can do it for paragraphs, pages. It's <laughs> kind of wonderful. Yeah. Well, one thing that people often forget about Lovecraft is that he was a great regional writer. He knew New England, you know, backwards and forwards. He traveled all through it. Uh, it was his home turf. He knew the, the landscape and the people and the, the buildings intimately. So that when he describes a place like Innsmouth, you believe him. True. He's able to convince you that a kind of run-down fishing village like this could exist kind of right next door to, to Newburyport and Cape Ann and all of these places that have become rather fancy now. You can almost believe him when he tells you that in all of those boarded up houses, there are hundreds and thousands of uh, fish people who come out at night and mm. hop around in a kind of <laughs> malevolent way. Yeah. He's very evocative of place, and he also does a pretty credible job of representing a thick kind of old New England dialect on the page so that you, you feel like you're entering into a real world 
And then the, he, he pulls the rug out from under you and that real world turns out to be full of unmentionable horrors, although he's all too happy to mention them. Paul Lafarge, where is he coming from in literary history and what did he think he was doing? Obviously, there's Edgar Allan Poe behind him. I think yeah. the cask of Amontillado, for example, but also Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I'm also thinking Turn of the Screw by Henry James. <laughs> Uh, he did read Henry James, yeah, and he or he read that that novella, and quite enjoyed it. Although he described it, I think, as a, a poisonous tale. He's also influenced by a generation of supernatural writers, most of whom we now read because Lovecraft read them: Arthur Machen, Lord Dunsany, the Anglo-Irish nobleman and poet and dramatist. He was very steeped in this kind of post-Poe tradition of, uh, of weird tales and cosmic horror, as he called it. So, you know, stories which don't necessarily have uh, wizards or zombies or ghosts wandering around in their sheets, but which do have a, an intimation that something is wrong with the universe. Paul, can I confess, sometimes I think this is not really literature. It reads more like sort of psychiatric notes on a long hmm. analysis of a, of a very troubled patient. He's got these hmm. weird dreams. The whole thing is dream-driven in certain ways, but also just a troubled guy and his dark fantasies. Yeah, well, he was certainly a troubled guy. And you can really see that in the letters that he wrote home to his aunt from... New York City in the years of his, you know, when he was married and then there was a period of time after his wife had moved to the Midwest for work and left him behind in a boarding house in Brooklyn Heights. And he had a, a Syrian neighbor living next door and he writes these uh, really horrifying screeds about his neighbor and the other immigrants who had come to Brooklyn and who were actually doing uh, quite well in New York City at that time in the mid-20s while he, Lovecraft, was flailing and unable to support himself. And his letters are pretty hateful. The best thing you could say about him, and it's not a very good thing, is that he was a, an equal opportunity hater of everyone who wasn't uh, a wasp. He includes the Poles and the French Canadians, and, you know, no one is, is exempt from his loathing. He was a deeply insecure guy, you know. He was someone who felt that he had been born at the wrong time. He would have liked to live in the 18th century when maybe uh, his status just as a, you know, a white guy from a good family would have brought him more money and power. And he felt overwhelmed and threatened and, and in a lot of ways defeated by the world as he found it. He never made hardly any money with his writing. He never published a book during his lifetime. He was sure that he would be forgotten when he died. He just hated and resented all the people who he saw thriving around him. He's a remarkable writer, no matter what. One of his stories, The Color Out of Space, is about a color that simply cannot be described. And here's his non-description of it. 
they had uncovered what seemed to be the side of a large colored globule embedded in the meteor, the color which resembled some of the bands in the meteor's strange spectrum was almost impossible to describe. Aside from being almost plastic, having heat, magnetism, and slight luminosity, cooling slightly in powerful acids, possessing an unknown spectrum, wasting away in air, and attacking silicon compound with mutual destruction as a result, it presented no identifying features whatsoever. <laughs> it was nothing of the earth, but a piece of the great outside. And there's the color of something that has no color. Yeah, which of course he's, he's identified in great detail before he tells you that it had no identifying features. There are readers who argue that that story is a kind of foreshadowing of the uh, invention of the atomic bomb. Mm. And then what he's describing, the blight that that color inflicts on the landscape around it, all of the plants grow to enormous sizes and then crumble into ash is not unlike the effects of, of atomic radiation at, you know, a high enough dose. There's almost no forthright erotic pulse in these yeah. stories. And I wonder what that tells us. It seems mostly as if that energy was siphoned off and, and appeared elsewhere under these kind of lurid forms as a giant octopus-headed, bat-winged thing with claws, or as a, a legion of hopping fish frogs, or uh, a circle of insane cultists dancing around a, a mysterious idol, you know, in the, the swamps of Louisiana. Would you read the last paragraphs of Innsmouth, Paul, which does a turn on the turn on the turn? This is this long story which culminates with the passage that you read, and that's sort of the climax of the story, when, when this poor guy is pursued by the legion of fish frogs. But at the end of the story, he comes to realize that he himself is descended from fish frogs. And so he says, I shall plan my cousin's escape from that Canton madhouse, and together we shall go to marvel-shadowed Innsmouth. We shall swim out to that brooding reef in the sea, and dive down through black abysses to cyclopean and many-columned Yahanthlai, and in the lair of the deep ones we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever. My word. And that's how the story ends. He's finally sort of infatuated and ecstatic about it. Yeah, you could almost see this as a, a happy resolution to the, the problem that Lovecraft's cosmology poses to us, which is, you know, well, if we can't defeat the monsters, maybe we, we should join them. You know, why mm. not just recognize our, our inner fish frogginess and, you know, kind of groove on it <laughs> uh, rather than fighting it and getting ourselves locked up in insane asylums. Why not surrender? Paul Lafarge has written four novels to strong reviews. His fiction and nonfiction appear in The New Yorker, Harper's, and The Paris Review. Coming up, Lovecraftian fiction by women and an HBO series that will flip the Lovecraft color line. This is Open Source.
Lovecraft Country describes a fictional landscape, the map with Massachusetts-sounding places on it like Arkham and Miskatonic University and the Minuxet River. Lovecraft Country is also the title of a novel by Matt Ruff. Jordan Peele, the horror maestro behind Get Out, is helping adapt it for an HBO series. Matt Ruff is a modern Lovecraftian who uses the old man's narrative devices to flip the nasty racial edge in a lot of the original Lovecraft. I probably came across Lovecraft when I was very young because I would just read anything science fiction or fantasy or horror related as a kid. And he was one of those authors who, when I first discovered him, I actually preferred his modern imitators better than him because, you know, he uses a lot of ornate language and the pacing, it was a little unusual for me as a child. But then uh, as I grew older, I came to appreciate the original Swarus much more. The quintessential Lovecraft story for me is a guy or a group of people, you know, going to a strange place and seeing all sorts of warning signs that something bad is going to happen, but they keep going anyway. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting for the bad thing to happen. And very often with Lovecraft, the monster, if it shows up at all, will only appear in the last page or the last paragraph, because it really is all about that anticipatory dread that you're doomed and it's coming and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You've inverted it, Matt, in an interesting way. He tells the story of always white, lonely men feeling monsters out there, including mixed-race people, black people. You've made Lovecraft World into a world of black travelers in sort of late Jim Crow America. How did that happen? And what are the resemblances in these worlds? Well, I was going to tell a story about a black family in Chicago having a series of supernatural adventures, and it was going to combine sort of paranormal horror with the real-life horrors of life in Mm. the era of legal segregation in the Jim Crow era. And I needed a thematic bridge between the two kinds of horror, and Lovecraft, to me, was sort of a perfect bridge for that because he is both, you know, rightly regarded as a a talented, very talented, very influential horror writer, but he was also a very devoted white supremacist, a very vocal white supremacist. But what's interesting about his fiction is that, you know, again, there's this sort of this situation of mounting dread that, to me, is sort of the quintessential Lovecraft experience. I mean, it, it applies just as well... Lovecraft would never have done this, but you can apply it just as well as to a black protagonist. If you imagine the situation of a black motorist in the 1950s who mm. takes a wrong turn and ends up in a sundown town where non-white people are, are most definitely not welcome after dark and your car breaks down and, you know, sundown's coming. And even if you haven't been directly threatened yet, there are all of these signs of looming catastrophe. That's very much a, a Lovecraft story, even though he himself would, would never have told the story like that. And you're working with Jordan Peele, very big man in modern day film horror. Speak of the adaptation. Well, it was funny. I, I, you know, I was when when Lovecraft Country came out, there was a, a surprising amount of interest in the book for me. I mean, unprecedented for me that there were there we there were a lot of different people interested in. And one of the more surprising entries, because Get Out had not happened yet, um, was Jordan Peele. And 
my uh, CIA agent called up one day and said, yeah, Jordan Peele wants to talk to you about this too. And, you know, he's, he's mostly known for comedy, but apparently he's looking to break into horror. And uh, he and I were just on the same wavelength about how you could, you could, on the one hand, be talking about paranormal horror, which we both clearly love very much, but at the same time use that and, and as, a, as a way of tying between that and, and the more mundane horrors of, in this case, prejudice and the Jim Crow era of legal segregation and the and a lot of the the horror that that black travelers in particular would face at that time it sort of weirdly can parallel the kind of horrors you would face in a Lovecraft story he did not seem to have a metaphysical view of the world a counter religion of who's in charge and this sort of stuff but he was an aesthetician and a real student of what scares people what they're afraid of how you get the you know Icy fingers up and down the spine sort of thing. Explain that. I, I mean, I, I, think, I actually think he did, in a way, have a religion. And for him, it was this, this belief in white supremacy and, and the, the long-term fate of the, the race. So for him, there was this idea of mutually exclusive civilizations succeeding one another, one after the other, and, and this constant cycle of rise and decline that is kind of echoed in his, in his fiction in this, this view of the elder gods coming back and wiping out humanity. And you know, that, that, as opposed to the idea that different civilizations or different cultures could work together and share ideas and respect one another, which I think struck him as naive and just not the way things worked. That, in a way, is, is, is as much of a religion as he had. Ridley Scott, 1979, his alien started a lot of this stuff in film. Where else should we look for Lovecraft influence? Wow. Uh, of all the artists I can think of, I think only Shakespeare is guaranteed to last longer than Lovecraft at this point. <laughs> But you can find him in, you know, not just in traditional horror. I mean, he shows up on South Park. We've, I think Cthulhu has made guest appearances on South Park. There are all kinds of pop culture references. There are board games. There are role-playing games. Pretty much any field where the nerd imagination roams free, you will find Lovecraft references of one kind or another. He's, he's really, yeah, he's in the DNA now. Much as some people wish that weren't true because of his, his racism, but he's kind of with us for good or bad now. The writer Silvia Moreno-Garcia, born in Mexico, now in Vancouver, speaks for a further extension of that Lovecraft DNA. She wrote Gods of Jade and Shadow, a historical fantasy out of Mexican mythology, and she edited She Walks in Shadows, also known as Cthulhu's Daughters, an award-winning anthology of Lovecraftian fiction by women. She put a Lovecraftian name on her imprint, the Innsmouth Free Press, to publish the future of what she calls weird fiction. I asked her to define it. A story where reality goes askew. It, it goes astray a little bit. It's bent. Weird fiction is more like that than zombies having their heads chopped off and, and that kind of stuff. It exists in a sort of liminal space. And I don't think it's always horror fiction. I think some Latin American writers do stuff that is strange and odd and where reality is kind of bent, but it's not necessarily horrific. It's just really weird. <laughs> what do you take from Lovecraft and what do you have to reject, including his white supremacy or his almost complete absence of women in his world? If you've read any pulp fiction from the time period, Lovecraft is not unusual in the sense of having few women or in having racial issues. And I don't say that to minimize 
um, these issues, but it's just something that when you're looking back in time, you have to be aware of that you are looking at a different time period and things that may be quite uncomfortable with, with that pulp fiction of the era. With that said, one of the benefits of Lovecraft, unlike other writers of that time period, is that I think Lovecraft is the creator of the very first shared universe. He is in correspondence with a wide variety of people, and he is not only giving them tips on writing and talking about literature and what he thinks about books, what makes a good book, but he's also sharing his ideas for stories and the elements in his stories. So he's telling others, look, I came up with this book. It's called the Necronomicon. I think it's really cool. If you want to use it, use it. I came up with these towns like Innsmouth and Arkham, and I think they're cool. You should use them. I came out with Cthulhu, and I think he's really neat, and he lives under the ocean. Why don't you use it? That's why I think he remains constant and remembered is because people found stuff that they really liked, and since he was willing to share it and pass it around in a very free-flowing way, People took what they wanted starting back in the day when he was still alive, but it continued after he died, and people are still doing that. They're looking back at Lovecraft, and they're taking what they want and reworking it. It's not that easy to do that with other writers. If you look at something like Mary Shelley, it's a great story, but there's not so many ways that you can rework that. Whereas Lovecraft provides you with a universe, this gigantic kind of backdrop and props, and it's like grabbing little Lego pieces. You can build whatever you want in the end. Sylvia, this thrills us because he was open source before his time. That's why he is our house fictionist, for sure. Um, But do you suppose he intended it this way, that I'm opening up a space where writers for a century, maybe more, will discover new things, be themselves? I think Lovecraft would be very surprised of his success, but he would have probably been really excited about some aspects. Uh, Since he liked to correspond a lot with people, I think he would have loved being on Reddit and just seeing what people said in a a Reddit thread about his stuff. Wow. Lovecraft on Reddit. Um, Think of a story, a movie for that matter, or a novel that's working specifically with a kind of Lovecraftian touch. When I watched the movie Annihilation, I thought it was the best adaptation of The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft that I have ever seen. Brilliant story. This meteorite falls into a farmhouse and it begins to mutate the land all around it. It's a color, it says. It talks several times about it. Shimmering and strange and everybody and the wildlife and the plants start to become odd and and bizarre. And there's no real explanation why it happened. It was just this thing that fell from the sky. In Annihilation, again, something fell from the sky at a lighthouse and it mutated the wildlife and the plants and everything all around it. And there's this weird shimmering color to everything around you. Once I think it's called the shimmer, once you call it this, this barrier that divides, quote unquote, the normal world from the infected world. And it's these five women scientists that go into this area to investigate what happened and what's going on. But I, I really thought that visually it, it was kind of like, I was like, oh, this is, you know, kind of Lovecraftian. Can you describe its form? No. What is it? I don't know. What does Stephen King owe Lovecraft? Stephen King wrote a couple of Lovecraftian stories back in his day. 
any horror writer kind of has written one Lovecraftian story, it's it's kind of like this big rite of passage. <laughs> Interesting. Have you written one? I have, kind of. <laughs> Describe it. Well, I, I I've written a bunch of things. I wrote one where it was um it was kind of like Innsmouth people, but they are in Mexico in the south in Yucatan, so fish people. <laughs> I like the fish people. <laughs> That's my favorite Lovecraft, the fish people. Okay. And I can see the spot that he's describing near Plum Island on the north shore of Boston. Yeah, it has a very specific geography, Lovecraft's stories. And um, my friend Levi Tidar was in the United States for the very first time. He was getting an award. And so I flew into Boston to see him. And I had lived in New England before for a little bit. So we went around and we kind of looked at some of the towns. And yeah, there were some points where he was standing there and he was like, this is just like Lovecraft's story. <laughs> and it was true. <laughs> Wouldn't you be nervous living there? Yeah, well, you know, I went to live there for a while because I wanted to see what it was like. Most people don't choose a college based on the fact that they read about it in a horror story. But that's what I did when I got several scholarship offers I ended up going to New England because I was like, I wonder if it really is like that. It really was like that in some ways. It, it's very strange. It's a very strange landscape. And you get these weird things like the Salem witch trials and stuff like that. <laughs> it's a very odd landscape, very gray and, and grim. I can see where he got his ideas after standing around Providence and, and taking a look at the sky. It can be pretty grim. <laughs> Definitely. It's still there. You've inhaled something of it. Yeah, I liked it. I really like that architecture, those houses with the pointy roofs. Since I'm from Mexico, all our houses are completely different. So I really like the pointy wooden houses. It seemed very odd to me. I always thought, how can they last? Wouldn't it break down? But apparently they can. So anyway, <laughs> it's just like a different, totally different lifestyle. And so I was just like, ah, oh, all right. So you can live by the sea. <laughs> I think he would be encouraged by your support. Yeah, I think the, um, there's two common gateways to Lovecraft. One of them is if you started with the role-playing game, the Call of Cthulhu. A lot of people got started with that. But a lot of older people, and I, and I started like this, was I read Lovecraft as a teenager. And there was just something that clicked uh, with him. I think the first story that I read from him was called The Outsider. And it was just this perfect encapsulation of a sense of loneliness and being an outsider of not belonging there was something as a teenager reading Lovecraft where it was like he got that sensation of not being in the right place on the right time and being completely wrong and I was attracted to that and a lot of people I've heard have been attracted to that there is a lot of sadness and you always when you read his stories you do get the feeling that nobody quite gets him and that it's a pretty depressing existence. Mm. So you feel bad for him <laughs> in many ways. But, you know, when you're a teenager, sometimes life can be so difficult that imagining a world with horrible monsters and things like that is better than your real life. At least it was for me. So it, it was an escape going into that world. If, even if Cthulhu was under the sea and he was going to eat us all, that was better than what I was, than what was waiting for me at home. And I think some people latch on to that when, when they're young, and that's why it reaches. Willem Pugmire, he, he's a writer that passed away this year, Willem Pugmire. He wrote a lot of Lovecraftiana. He really loved Lovecraft. And he was very much a gay writer, 
and kind of quite a character, an extravagant character. And I could see why Lovecraft would have spoken to him at the time when he was young, because being a completely mm. queer writer, and I think he came from a very conservative background, might have been Mormon background. I think it gave him a place of escape, a place where he could feel that, yes, in a way I am the outsider and I am the monster and it's also okay. So you sometimes get that weird sense that, okay, well, yeah, maybe we are fish people, but mm. at least we will get to swim under the sea. And Pagmar, definitely, you, you wonder why would somebody who is queer gravitate towards that? But the sense of loneliness, of isolation... I think he captured that. And, and Willem adored Lovecraft <laughs> so, so much. So fascinating to hear from you, Sylvia, because you sound so naturally buoyant. Well, you know, um, scary stories, I think we gravitate to, towards them for, for a reason. It, it's fear that is controlled and in a way that is, that is safe. Mm. Uh, the outside world is sometimes very baffling, doesn't follow rules, and can be much more terrifying than any of these supernatural shenanigans. So I think it offers a really good space. Some people wonder why women like gothic fiction, but I think it's both because it reflects the anxieties of the women, the idea that the home can be a dangerous place, and because it provides a safe space to reflect on those anxieties. Silvia Moreno-Garcia, thank you so much. You've really told us a lot. Thank you so much. And, well, happy Halloween to everybody. Thank you, Matt Ruff, Paul Lafarge, and Joyce Carol Oates. Thanks to listeners for learning a little Lovecraft with us. My suggestion for newbies like me is read The Rats in the Walls. Just 20 pages and you'll never have to sleep again. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, an energetic collective of engaging, idea-driven podcasts, including The Constant, a witty exploration of how humans tend to get things wrong. In a recent episode, The Curse, host Mark Chrysler weaves a captivating story of museums, mummies, and medical maladies. You can hear more at constantpodcast.com and check out all of our Hub and Spoke colleagues at hubspokeaudio.org. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our ghost-in-chief. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.